Solitude. Uh, we're reading about solitude in the um, intimate journals of Thomas Merton in the year 1963 now. By years here, we're trying to do by year. January 4th. You were what? 10? You were 10? January 4th, 1963, the year, new year, has begun well, though I have had a filthy cold. <laughs> he has a cold. Mm. Mm. The merger of the two noviciates, uh, no, noviciates, mm. that's like the n initiates, new initiates, noviates, is proceeding well, mainly because uh, all the novices are so good. <laughs> I am happy with the brother novices. One loves them immediately. They really have something, a special grace of simplicity and honesty and goodness. You think he just became simple, honest, and good, and he just projected himself into them? <laughs> it is a great grace to have them there, choir and... You, know, huh? you, you understand better what you, you said, Father. Mm. So if you are uh, mm -hmm. good, you understand goodness. If you are yeah, you truthful, you understand truthfulness. They had a, a good crop of new initiates. <laughs> it is a great grace to have them there. Bro choir and brothers seem happy with each other, and everyone seems agreed that the plan is working well. In fact, there seem to be all sorts of good things about it that one had not anticipated. <laughs> the unifying of the noviciata is certainly important and salutary. 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 I think it will mean a great deal, and furthermore, further, I have to admit that, though I am carrying it out, it is not originally my idea, but the abbot's. However, I did take a certain initiative, and he was pleased to let me do so. I think the grace the brothers have comes from their work, which keeps them, perhaps, when properly done, from getting too obsessed with themselves. <laughs> Remember we read about how you should distance yourself, just be socially distant from yourself, uh, from your ego. We're trying, while we're in sheltering in place, staying in place, and uh, locked down in New York, we're trying to be socially distant from our egos, being getting too obsessed with themselves and with their spirituality. It is wonderful how they will go into anything and get it done, not standing around scratching their heads with the dubiousness of the choir, not waiting to be told each next move. You don't want somebody who has to be told every move, right? They have some initiative. <laughs> you can put this in your coffee, you know. It's going to be like cream. Cream in the coffee? Mm-hmm. I should bring you some hot coffee, though. This eh? is like cream on the cake. You put it in the coffee, though. Let's bring some. We never hot have cream. Yeah, I used to do that. But it's nice. It's like a cappuccino. Cream on the coffee. Hmm. January 15th, 1963. The noise and concern about the Novitiate. T8. Novitiate. 
and all those who come to the classes are having a deep effect on me. The work is hard, though I am doing more than I probably should in my concern to be well prepared. I also realize the limitations of anything short of prayer and abandonment as preparation, the limitations of my own capacity. Hence, in everything I have come to feel more than ever my need for grace, my total dependence on God, my helplessness without his special intervention, which I may need at any moment. Never has this been so clear to me. Perhaps it was never before as true as now. In consequence, my attitude toward the monastery changes. They have need of me and I have need of them, as if without this obedience and charity my life would not make sense. It is an existential situation. It is an existential situation which God has willed for me. And it is part of his providence, and it is not to be questioned, no matter how difficult it might be. Hmm. Hmm. It must simply obey God, and this reaches out into everything, even at the Hanumataj. It is less a question of seeking him than of total submission and obedience to him, to whom I belong in love. In this new condition, my attitude towards the abbot is changing. Of course, it is obvious that my complaints and discontent have been absurd. Though I can perhaps back them up with plausible arguments, they have no real meaning. They don't make sense. He is what he is. He means well and, in fact, does well. He is the superior destined for me in God's providence, and it is absurd for me to complain. (laughs) He's going to give up complaining. No harm will ever come to me through him. It cannot. How could I have thought otherwise? Do you think that our current situation is willed by God? It is an existential situation which God has willed for me. And it's part of his providence. Do you think that our... The best thing for us is what we currently have. The best place to be is right where you are. Hmm. Hmm. In this new condition, my attitude toward the attitude. Oh, we already read that. <laughs> January 17, 1963. A great trial of fidelity in Christian life, a trial that springs from the fact that we too closely identify fidelity to God and fidelity to external organization in the Catholic Church. Hence, there is invariably a great trial when an apparent conflict is precipitated, and it is easily precipitated. There are times when it seems that Fidelity to God is not compatible with mere obedience to an external norm where fidelity to God requires something else, certainly not revolt nor disobedience, but a presentation of alternative and deeper views. (sighs) We're experiencing going into a Christian monastery just through this book (laughs) rather than going itself.
But do you still want to go to Gethsemane <laughs> for a visit? Uh, mm -hmm. To see basically the birds in the trees and uh, the scriptarium. Uh, mm -hmm. And see the Thomas Merton Library mm -hmm. in Louisville. Mm -hmm. A fidelity that always demands the sacrifice of the interior and the more perfect in order to perform to an external norm that is mediocre and requires of us only passivity and inertia is an infidelity to God and to his church. And at the same time, we must not make a fetish out of autonomy and be faithful only to our own will, for this is the other way to infidelity. The answer is in the church considered less as an organization than as a living body of interrelated freedoms. Fidelity belongs not so much to the realm of love as to the realm of love, but it presupposes obedience and self-sacrifice. January 21, 1963, St. Agnes. Very cold morning. About eight above zero. It's January 21 now. Left for the Hermitage before dawn after retreat conference on sin. Pure dark sky with only moon and planets in it. Stars already gone. The moon and Venus over the barns. Remember you saw moon and Venus, dear? Moon and Venus over the barns, and Mars far over in the west, over the road and the fire tower. You see, you can see much better out there. Yeah. When is it that Moon is with Venus? <laughs> no. Yeah? Yeah. Is that a love sign? Is that romantic? <laughs> Sunrise, an event that calls forth sour music. In the very depths of one's being, as if one's whole being had to attune itself to the cosmos and praise God for the new day. Praise Him in the name of all the beings that ever were, ever will be. As though now upon me falls the responsibility of seeing what all my ancestors have seen, acknowledging it and praising God so that whether or not they praise God back then, themselves, they now do so in me. <laughs> Do you think of the people in the past didn't praise God that we now have to praise Him on their behalf? Sunrise? Just in case. <laughs> Just in case they forgot. Sunrise demands this rightness, this order, this true disposition of one's whole being. God fearing. God fearing. Huh. January 25th, 1963, still very cold and bright. Reading the journals of Thomas Merton. The best thing about the retreat has been working in the pig barn. Uh -huh. The pig barn? Big pig barn. Well, listen to this. The best, the best thing about the retreat has been working in the pig barn. Uh -huh. What's pig barn? Pig barn. Pig, uh and then walking back alone a mile and a half through the snow. Well, that includes walking back alone. So which was the best part, the pigs or walking back alone through the snow? 
He says, The best thing about the retreat has been working in the pig barn and then walking back alone a mile and a half through the snow. So was it the pigs or the snow? Working alone with the pigs. The best part of the retreat. Strange. How can it be so good for? What's wrong with why? Why does it have to be bad to be working at the pig barn? Oh, they stink. They stink. You know that pigs actually, in a natural setting, actually may not stink as bad as you think. Maybe I don't remember. Organic pigs. <laughs> <laughs> But do they eat them? In in a traditional pig pig them? barn, they may not stink as bad as you think. Mm -hmm. Do they eat them? I don't know. I'm not into advanced abstract speculation about. Yeah, maybe what because they have pigs. all that mud to uh, the mud is absorbing all the bad uh, smells, you know. Well. I remember that uh, if you call them, you could call them free-range pigs. I don't think they smell as bad as captive pigs. Free-range pigs. <laughs> they go out and they go and uh, they make all kinds of... What do they... They dig up the field and make... Um, A mud... Mud... Mud holes, basically. Mm -hmm. They really dig up the field. I think I have come Strange to see. How they do that and why? Maybe it's healing the mud. Uh, do you think that the best thing about working on living on a farm has been working in the pig barn? <laughs> okay. All right. It's hard to say. Do they eat them? Probably. Do they eat the pigs? Well, we don't know that they're vegetarians at this point. Huh? Yeah, they're not necessarily. Mm. I know they drink wine, even in Greece. They drink wine, they mm. eat meat, uh, but uh, we have a lot of fasting days. We don't know. Some what? days they eat actually. You could go down and ask them. We'll go to Kentucky. Oh, that's wrong. Why should we? Ask them if they ate pigs. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I don't see how you could meditate what, a long time with eating pigs. And, hmm. I think I have come to see more clearly and more seriously the meaning or lack of meaning in my life. How much I am still the same self-willed and volatile person who made such a mess of Cambridge. See, the bottom line is you don't change much. You can contemplate all you want in the monastery. You're still the self-willed and volatile person who made such a mess of Cambridge that, that I have not changed yet, down in the depths. Or perhaps, yes, I have changed radically somewhere, yet I have still kept some of the old, vain, and constant, self-centered ways of looking at things. Uh -huh. Do you think I have some of the same self-centered ways of looking at things, despite hours of long-term meditation? Mm -hmm. The situation I am in now has been given me to change me, if I will only surrender completely 
to reality as it is given me by God and no longer seek in any way to evade it, even by interior reservations. Hitherto, my interior reservation has always has been always, quote, of course there must be something better, and who knows if that is not for me. Mm -hmm. Do you always think that there's something better out there? There must be something better. No. You think the best is right here? Well, there is some there. Well, there is something better. He says, "Well, there is something better, but it must come out of an inner transformation of my own self in Christ. What is better is Christ. That is to say, for me to live completely in and by Him." I already do live in him, of course, but there remains much to be surrendered that still remains, quote, my own. Hmm. Goodness, he's been in this monastery over 20 years, and he hasn't removed entirely the veil of the ego completely. You think Maneri is more advanced? I would say Maneri is... Probably as a famous Sufi master, you can't. Yeah, it's a different. That's a different league, really. January twenty-eight, nineteen sixty-three. Here at the Hermitage, in deep snow, everything is ordinary and silent. Return to reality and to the ordinary in silence. It is always there if you know enough to return to it. What is not ordinary, the tension of meeting people, discussion, ideas, this too is good and real, but illusion gets into it. The unimportant becomes important, words and images become more important than life. Do you think that happens? Mm, yeah, your concentration, mm. your attention is mm. Mm. in a way not right. One travels all over vast areas, sitting still in a room, and one is soon tired of so much traveling. Uh, William Miller of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and Paul Peachy of the Church Peace Mission were here. I was eventually strained and tense from all the talk. It is quieter this morning with Peachy alone. We discussed my peace book which is not being published, and his translation of Dumoulin's History of Zen, which has just appeared, and it was a fruitful morning. D-U-M-O-U-L-I-N's History of Zen. Yet I need very much this silence and this snow. Do you ever feel you need silence and snow? Here alone can I find my way, because here alone the way is right in front of my face and it is God's way for me. There is really no other. February 27, 1963, Ash Wednesday. Our mentioning of the weather, our perfunctory observations on what kind of day it is are perhaps not idle. 
Perhaps we have a deep and legitimate need to know in our entire being what the day is like, to see it and feel it, to know how the sky is gray, paler in the south, while patches of blue in the southwest with snow on the ground. The thermometer at 18 and cold wind making your ears ache. I have a real need to know these things because I myself am part of the weather and part of the climate and part of the place. <laughs> A day in which I have not shared truly in all this is not no day at all. It is certainly part of my life of prayer. <laughs> Do you think the weather is part of your life of prayer? Mm -hmm. You think the earth's weather? Are you part of the climate? <laughs> He says, I myself am part of the climate. <laughs> March 10, 1963, second Sunday of Lent. I thought today at adoration of the Blessed Sacrament what a blessing it was that I did not go in 1956 to be analyzed by Gregory Zilborga. What a tragedy and mess that would have been, and I must give Z the credit of having sensed it himself in his own way. It would have been utterly impossible and absurd, I think in great measure, his judgment was that I could not be fitted into his kind of theater. There was no conceivable part for me to play in his life, on the contrary, and certainly it is true that the whole thing would have been unimaginably absurd. He had quite enough intelligence, more than enough. He was no fool at all to see that it would be a very poor production for him. For the abbot, who was most willing, and for me, I am afraid that I was willing at the time to go, which shows what a fool I was. <laughs> In any case, all matter of being better things were reserved for me, but I have not understood them. <sighs> Time for a truffle. Hmm. We're into slow reading because we have a lot of time. We have nowhere to go. We're locked in. We have nothing that's open. We can't go anywhere. We're surrounded by coronavirus and trapped in our house. Oh. Hmm. We're looking for the way out. For the confirmation. What's to Alexa? <laughs> what is today's confirmation? Daily. No day. Dear. Daily affirmation. Confirmation is seen as the sealing of Christianity created in baptism. Alexa, what is today's daily affirmation? Here is your affirmation for today. Today. I am shining with energy and overflowing with joy. Shining with energy, overflowing with joy. Alexa, can you give me another daily affirmation? Here is your affirmation for today. I am at peace in the present moment. <laughs> We're lucky to have a third listener. Mm -hmm. so Our second listener. Try that for today. Okay. I'm filled with energy and joy. I like that. Alexa, 
What is Zen? Zen is the Japanese term for the principle of dhyana in Buddhism and for Zen Buddhism, a school of Mahayana Buddhism which originated in China during the Tang Dynasty. Chinese Chan Buddhism developed into various other schools, including many Japanese Zen schools, to which the term Zen in English sometimes refers. Thank you. We continue with Merton. In a Zen koan, someone said that an enlightened man is not one who seeks Buddha or finds Buddha, but just an ordinary man who has nothing left to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Alexa, what is uh, the definition of the word koan? The noun kun is usually defined as a rustic or undignified person. Alexa, what is a Zen koan? Here's something I found on Wiktionary. I have several definitions for Zen. One, mm. as a noun, a denomination of Buddhism. Nah. Two, right. as a noun, profound meditation within that denomination of Buddhism. All right. Three, as a noun, an approach to an activity, skill, or mm. subject that emphasizes simplicity and intuition rather than conventional thinking or fixation mm. on goals. Mm. Four, as an adjective pertaining to this denomination of Buddhism. For more, ask me to give you more definitions for Zen. Mm. In a Zen koan, someone said that an enlightened man is not one who seeks Buddha or finds Buddha but just an ordinary man who has nothing left to do. Yet, mere stopping is not to arrive. To stop is to stay a million miles from it. To do nothing is to miss it by the whole width of the universe. Yet how close it is, how simple it would be to have nothing more to do. If I had only done it, Meanwhile, I am more content than I have ever been here with this unripeness. I know that one day it will ripen, and then one will see there had been nothing there at all except an ordinary person with nothing to do in the first place. The evening light, purple coves and holes of shadow in the breast of hills and the white gable of Newton's house smiling so peacefully amid the trees in the middle of the valley. This is the peace and luminosity William Blake loved. Today after dinner a hawk circling the Novitiat and the church steeple designed a free flight unutterably more pure than skating or music. How he flung himself down from on high and swooped up to touch lightly on the pinnacle of the steeple and sit there, then fell off to cut lovely curves all around the cedars, then off like an arrow into the south.
March 31, 1963, that notaris illuminist the Holy Ghost. Now the Mava hills are stained with green, as if I would write a novel about a southern place called Mav Hill. Mm. April 7th, 1963, Palm Sunday. Quiet sunset. Cool, still day, and another fire over toward Rohan's Knob. Peace and silence at sunset behind the woodshed. With the wind playing quietly on a heap of logs. With a detached fragment of gutter hanging from the edge of the roof with bare branches of sycamores against the blue evening sky. Peace and solitude. Daily I rot. <laughs> He's rotting. Daily I rot. God, what a, a confirmation. Do you feel that we rot in some ways? No. We're not rotting. We must be rotting if we're not. Imagine if an onion there. rots. Yeah? A new onion is born. We're not. So we can <coughs> say I'm reborn instead. Yeah? But we don't live forever and we're aging. We must be rotting. So reborning. Take a path. Uh, an onion that you think it's rotten, it brings, brings a new little onion. Actually, so, if you go into deep meditation, you can probably stimulate your stem cells. And, uh, that's a different thing, but uh, yeah, instead of saying grow younger, rotten, huh? you don't rot into nothing, you, you give birth to that process, give birth to something else. Right, you can give birth so to your flight of your soul, maybe. So, huh? uh, so you are reborn in a way. Okay. He says, daily I rot. My health is good, but little pieces and parts of me begin to work less and less well. I don't especially care. I am used used and wearing. You think some of us is wearing out? <laughs> we all do. Mm. So it's I have to read this section here to you, huh? dear. April 24th, 1963, the icon of St. Elias, which Jack Ford brought me from St. Meinrod's, and which yesterday I put up on the east wall, fabulously beautiful and delicate and strong, a great red transparent globe of light with angelic horses rearing in unison and angels lifting all of it up to the blackness of the divine mystery. From below the dark curve and shelves of the mountain from which Elysius reaches into the globe to touch the mantle of the prophet who stands in a little finely drawn very simple Russian peasant's cart in the globe of fire. Below Elias sleeps, that was before when he had sorrow. The angel leans over him and mentions the hearth cake to the sleeping prophet. <coughs> what a thing to have by you. It changes everything, transforms, figures everything. Outside the door, double bloom on one large violet iris, standing out of the green spires of the daylilies. On the tongue of the bloom walks a great black gold bee, the largest honey bee I ever saw. 
To be part of all this is to be infinitely rich. <laughs> Father Alfonsi died this morning. I was kneeling by his bed, and we said the wonderful prayers calling upon all the prophets, patriots, martyrs, such prayers. I discovered that I was very fond of this crusty, simple, rude old man. Rude. The relic. She said the rude? Rude. <laughs> The relic of St. Beatty over my heart preparing me for May. <laughs> I was going to reread uh, the entry for May 10th, uh, March 10th on Zen. <laughs> Let me read this. <clears throat> In a Zen koan, someone said that an enlightened man is not one who seeks Buddha or finds Buddha, but just an ordinary man who has nothing left to do. Yet mere stopping is not to arrive. To stop is to stay a million miles from it. To do nothing is to miss it by the whole width of the universe. Yet how close it is, how simple it would be to have nothing more to do, if I had only done it. <clears throat> Meanwhile, I am more content than I have ever been here with this unripeness. I know that one day... It will ripen, and one will see there has been nothing there at all except an ordinary person with nothing to do in the first place. You think we're, we're just like an ordinary person with nothing to do in the first place? Right now? <laughs> kind of. Maybe all along we had nothing left to do. How could that be? Now we just realize it. Hmm. Do we have anything left for Miss A to do for us? I know she does, plays the radio and she does definitions. There's probably a lot of things she can do. Hmm. All right, May 21, 1963, Marvelous Vision of the Hills at 745. Alexa, hmm. what is an ordinary man? Oh, goodness. Sorry, I don't know that one. Dear, that's too difficult for her. Alexa, what is ordinary man? As an adjective, ordinary is usually defined as of no special quality or interest, commonplace, Unexceptional. As a noun, ordinary is usually defined as a commonplace or average condition, degree, etc. For more, ask me to give you more definitions for ordinary. See, I balanced out. Uh, as an adjective, it's better, actually. So, something that's balanced out, yeah. Average. Perfect, then. Ordinary, ordinary man should be the perfection. The balanced person. So we're balanced. Really? <laughs> That's a good description. Well, you're, uh, I have no comment. <laughs> I have nothing to, left to do but read this. May 21, 1963. Marvelous vision of the hills at 7.45 a.m. The same hills, as always... As in the afternoon, but now catching the light in a totally new way, at once very earthly and very ethereal, with delicate cups of shadow and dark ripples and cr 
crinkles where I have never seen them, the whole slightly veiled in mist so that it seemed to be a tropical shore, a newly discovered continent. A voice in me seemed to be saying, look, look, for these are the discoveries, and it is for this that I am high on the mask of my ship, have always been, and I know that we are on the right course, for all around is the sea of paradise. <laughs> hmm. Are we just going to keep reading until the talk, the broadcast? A voice in me seemed to be crying, look, look, for these are the discoveries, and it is for this that I am high on the mask of my ship, and I know that we are on the right course, for all around is the sea of paradise. <sighs> May 26, 1963. Today is the 14th anniversary of my ordination to be to the priesthood. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I read so many religious books? Is that like I'm being like a priest? <laughs> you think I read too many religious books? <laughs> I wish I could say that they had been 14 years of ever-growing fulfillment and order and integration. That is unfortunately not so. They have been years of relative happiness and productivity on the surface, but now I realize more and more the depth of my frustration and the apparent finality of my defeat. I have certainly not fitted into the conventional or even traditional mode. Do you think that I don't fit at all in any mode? <laughs> I don't think, I don't fit in conventional. You know what you fit. Perhaps that is true, good. I am not a J.F. Powers character, yet the frustration is the same. I do not know if I am a George Bernanos character. I am not a Graham Greene character. But this business of defeat is there, and I see it is perhaps in some way permanent. As if, in a way, my priestly life has been sad and fruitless. Do you think his priestly life has been sad and fruitless? Well, he wrote, he wrote this journal, which we are enjoying. It's not his journal is not sad and fruitless. He has he has a beautiful journals. Uh -huh. It's not his best writing in his journals. Uh -huh. My best writing has always been in journals, quote Thomas Merton. Mm. The defeat and failure of my monastic life, perhaps for all, after all, how do I know? How does he know? What? God. He says, as if in a way my priestly life has been sad and fruitless, the defeat... The defeat and failure of my monastic life, perhaps for after all, how do I know? He doesn't know. I have a very real sense that it has all been some kind of a lie, a charade, with all my blundering attempts at sincerity. 
Remember, Maneri was talking about sincerity. I have actually done nothing to change this. I have certainly not been a model of priestly virtue. It does not seem that I have willfully sinned, in other words, with my eyes wide open in a serious manner. But there has been repeated failures, failures without number, with like holes appearing everywhere in a worn-out garment. Nothing has been effectively patched. The moths have eaten me while I was confusedly intent on what seemed to me to be good or important or necessary for survival. God, the moths ate him. The moths have eaten me. Goodness. There has been a kind of dazed desperation in my half-conscious attempts to preserve my identity while being worn down by the ever-renewed fertility of a half-productive existence. I have not always been temperate. If I go to town and someone pours me a drink, I don't resist another or even a third. (laughs) God... What's that all about? What's a drink? An alcoholic they, drink? They drink wine, you know. That's ridiculous. Yeah, monks drink wine. Sometimes they make their own, you know. That's elementary. Dear, that's elementary. We stopped. We've been drinking only non-alcoholic beer, but I seem to can't resist a third one. <laughs> I want a third non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> and I have sometimes gone beyond the trivium perfectum, the perfect third, a monk. Probably the chief weakness has been lack of real courage to bear up under the attention of monastic and priestly life. Anyway, I am worn down, I am easily discouraged, the depressions are deeper, more frequent, I am near 50. People think I am happy. My Mass every morning has certainly been a joy, and I have attended seriously to it. There has sometimes been great and simple meaning in it, and always the realization that it was far greater than I could understand. But there have also been moments of unspeakable anguish and tension. I suppose that in the end, what I have done is that I have resisted the superimposition of a complete priestly form, a complete monastic pattern. I have stubbornly saved myself from becoming absorbed in the priesthood, and I do not know if this was cowardice or integrity. There seems to be no real way for me to tell. (laughs) Goodness. This is too intense. I'm going to have to rest. Goodness. What happened here? I don't know if I can finish uh, 63. Maybe I should keep going. (sighs) June 1, 1963. Vigil of Pentecost. It is hot. Pope John is dying and perhaps dead. Already yesterday at this time, he was in a coma, in an oxygen tent, with the papal guards around his apartments. 
Last night he was conscious for a moment, they say, and smiled and blessed those around him. I have been thinking of him all day and praying for him, especially at the high mass after none. After none. N-O-N-E. The world owes him a great debt. In his simplicity, it is hard to feel that we can do without someone like him. He has done so much in four years, four and a half, and to remind people that Christian charity is not a pure fiction. Yet, in spite of all of it, will people ever again have confidence in love? Will they not think that everyone who has spoken of love has finally betrayed them? June 3rd, 1963, Whit Monday, Retreat at Hermitage, Mass at 4. Up shortly after five, through the mist and the wet grass, open the ground of hearing. Eckhart. Quote, open the ground of hearing. Eckhart. Time here seems quite a different measure, kind of measure, and in fact it is, for time is constituted by relationships. Time is constituted by relationships, and here all the relationships are different. I am convinced that the tensions of our community life are delusions and obsessions because of the unreality of our activities, the basic unreality of our relationships. Unreal because much too artificial and contrived. Well, we know that some of monastic life is contrived. <laughs> In any case, here one has a sense of being both fully relaxed and fully alive, of having nothing to do, or per rather perhaps still wanting to read and think, but not being able to be to because of the sweetness and fullness of time, which is too good to lose. <clears throat> the immediacy of the relationships is all too good to be lost. The sun, the summer, Tanager, T-A-N-A-G-E-R. I finally connected the song with the bird. That's a bird, Tanager. The clear morning, the trees, the quiet, the barely born butterfly from the cocoon under the bench, etc. Seriously, my projects and relationships, including correspondence and much of my work, are sheer waste. The only thing that can be said for them is that they seem at times to be more real than what goes on in the community and perhaps are. I think his writing is more important than the community. Relationships with the novices, though, are meaningful and healthy, though I question the value of my conferences. Maybe I am working in support of a delusion. You think his TED Talks are worthless? But his books are more valuable. His journals are particularly valuable. June 4th, 1963, Solitude. When you get saturated with silence and landscape, then you need an interior work, psalm, scripture, meditation. But first the saturation. How much of this is simply a restoration of one's normal human balance? Like waking up, like convalescence, after an illness, my life here is most real because most simple. In the monastery, it is also real and simple, at least in the novitiate. The more I reach out into the world, the less simplicity, the more sickness. Our society is gravely ill. 
This is said so often, and I have said it so often, but saying it does not seem to help. Knowing it does not seem to help, my concern has been probably sincere, but in great part futile. I don't want to turn off into desperation and negativism, but there has to be a far greater reserve and caution and silence in my looking at the world and my attempts to help us all survive. Identity. I can see now where the work is to be done. I have been coming here into solitude to find myself, and now I must also lose myself. Not simply rest in the calm, the peace, the identity that is made up of my experienced relationship with nature and solitude. This is healthier than my identity as a writer or a monk, but it is still a false identity. Though it has a temporary meaning and validity, it is the cocoon that masks the traditional transition stage between what crawls and what flies. End of 63. We finished it. <laughs> we read all of 1963. <laughs> what do you think? This last section is quite intense in a way. God, he thinks too much. I would just meditate and not think about it. Of course, he concentrates in his journal and it's compressed a bit, so he's got a lot of time and he has nothing to do. <laughs> we have nothing to do, right now we have nothing to do but read this journal, and at the time he had nothing to do but write the journal, besides his doing meditation and his writing books and work with the novitiate, uh, with the novices, in his solitude and his hermitage. What do you think? We have nothing to do but read this book. Uh, and he had nothing to do but write it, apparently. So that's how this came about. We read the 1963 in the journals, the intimate journals of Thomas Merton. Oh.